0: Thanks to Nathan and everybody who led us tonight in worship, we just appreciate and know how blessed we are, just get myself sorted out to have the the group of musicians and singers that we have, I'm grateful for that. Uh, I'll tell you what, um, I'm going to preach tonight from Revelation chapter 5, but just to say obviously with the time scales that I'm working to now, I, I'm definitely not going to get through Revelation. Um, And I've got a lot to do in Romans, so I might be concentrating a bit more on that, but there are one or two kind of um, controversial passages in Revelation that I I do want to tackle uh, before I go, and just to give you a general kind of idea of how the book should be approached. So I will do that. But if you turn in your Bibles, if you have a Bible, to Revelation chapter 5, and John's just had this vision of the throne room of heaven. I wept and wept, because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, standing as if it had been slain, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne, and when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign On the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and glory and honor and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them, singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. Let's just come and let's pray. So, Father, we pray that you'll be with us tonight and that, Lord, you'll open your word to us. We know that we can never have true understanding of your word and of spiritual things unless our hearts are open to the Holy Spirit, because you are the one who can bring understanding. So, Lord, be with us. Help us to be open and ready to hear from you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, my younger brother has a very detailed memory of lots of things that happened in our youth. Whereas for me, I have to say my memory is much more sketchy. There's just too much going on in life to remember the details of things that happened 50, 60 years ago or so. So because of that, when something stands out in my memory, well, it must have made an impression on me. It must have been significant. If I can remember something from way back then, it must have been. And one such memory that's very vivid is of a dark Saturday night in winter. I was pretty young, and I'd been allowed up to stay up late to watch the Alfred Hitchcock Hour, a series of of dramas that were on that were introduced by the famous film director. Now, I have to say... Alfred Hitchcock himself was enough to scare me at that point in my life when I looked at him. And for those too young to remember, just say, look up Google Images and you'll see what I mean. Now, now looking back at them now, these uh, shows, they, they weren't scary in the kind of graphic way that too many problems are today. But, you know, they did build an atmosphere. And in this particular program, um, two, I think, agency nurses were looking after a seriously ill man somewhere in the United States in an isolated home on a dark and stormy night. And so bad were the storms that orders had gone out that no one was allowed out. No cars were to be on the roads. But these two nurses at some point were telephoned by the police to warn them that they'd found out that a notorious killer was in the area. Now, a whole different series of events happened after that, and these two nurses discovered in some way that this killer was in the house. And by now, with the phone lines cut, they tried, but there was nothing they could do to summon help. And it all built up to a climax where these two nurses, one a beautiful young woman, the other to be diplomatic, a more mature and matronly figure, had locked and barricaded themselves in a bedroom. And you know, their eyes, the music was playing, and their eyes and yours were transfixed on the door that you just expected that killer to start breaking through. And then just at that moment, two hands suddenly appeared round the neck of the younger nurse. And she struggled. And then the camera moved up to focus on the face of the older nurse, whose wig by now had fallen off and was revealed to be a bald man with lipstick on. Now, I have to say that isn't so strange now, but believe me, it was then. And he spoke the words that I remember to this day, such a pretty nurse to die. And then the screen went blank. Now, that night, I had to literally be dragged to bed. And I never watched Alfred Hitchcock ever again. And from that time on, I've always been very wary of two things, men with makeup. And disguises. Well, the chapter what we're going to look at now uh, here in Revelation 5 it involves, I suppose you could say, an element of disguise. And yet, you know, it's so much more. And far from being scary, this chapter is actually one of the most glorious chapters in all of God's Word. For as I said in the last chapter we looked at in Revelation 4, there... To a church then that was about to go through a time of severe persecution and thereby extension to the church that faces persecution and opposition down through the ages. There, the throne room of heaven is thrown open wide. And what we then see is God on his throne with all the symbolism of this chapter being about God then saying, saying, focus on me. When the world seems against you, when your world maybe seems to be falling apart, when you can't understand what's happening, and when you can see no way out, focus on me. Remember me. Remember who your God is, that he is the Almighty the God of glory and of power, the God of total holiness and of infinite love, the sovereign God, the Lord who holds your life and this world in His hands, the God of victory, the God who has won the victory and who will complete His purpose in your life, in His world. With this being more what we move on now in Revelation 5 to look at, That is the declaration of God's purpose. The the opening up, if you like, of the declaration of God's purpose. Now there are a number of elements that are key to this vision. So what we're going to do is just seek to uncover what they're saying in turn and then just try and put this together to see the picture that this paints of God's purpose. So we begin then with the scroll in verse 1 to 4. I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Now, the one who sits on the throne holding the scroll in his his right hand, his favored hand, is, of course, God, the King enthroned forever. The fact that he holds the scroll in that right hand underlines its importance its significance. The fact that it's written on, on both sides, that signifies that this document is complete. And given its, its context in, in Revelation, its context in this chapter, then it's clear, as one writer mounts as he says, that this document contains the full account of what God in his sovereign will has determined as the destiny of the world. The fact that this scroll is, is sealed with seven seals, that's significant in a, a number of ways. To begin with, we know that in places like Psalm 139, 16, that there are hints there of a heavenly book outlining the, the future destiny of history. Because there we, we read there, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Then in Ezekiel chapter 2, a book is unfolded there, a scroll unfolded before Ezekiel, and it says that on both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. We also know that during the time period of the New Testament, that legal documents then were sealed, with the most important documents being sealed with seven seals. For example... Something like a will could be witnessed and sealed with the seals of seven witnesses. Then when the person who'd written that will died, these seven witnesses would be expected to be there when the will was opened and read with each seal being broken one at a time. And of course, biblically, we know that the the number seven in the Bible is often used as a symbol for God, as a symbol for perfection. And this tells us that the seals on this document are unbroken and unbreakable, and that its contents are perfect and uncorrupted. So this is the book. This is the scroll that God holds in His right hand, a document containing the destiny of His world, of His creation, and above all of man, the crown of creation. Then a, a mighty angel, possibly the angel Gabriel, we don't know, who features prominently among the angelic forces in Old and New Testament. He cries out in a loud voice, we're told, loud enough to penetrate heaven, earth, and under the earth. He cries out, Who is worthy to break the seals and open The scroll. But the answer is silence. There is no one worthy in heaven or on or under the earth. And John's response, he tells us, is that he weeps and weeps. His heart is broken. Why this kind of strength of reaction? Why, well, because John knows that these seals need to be broken, that this scroll has to be opened in order for God's plan for man's destiny to be set into motion. Paul Barnett he says here, John himself weeps profusely, because without a worthy person, the future, including the blessings of the new heaven and the new earth, will not be known, will not come to pass. The dragon, the devil, and his evil beasts will then continue to maul and attack the people of God. That's the scroll then within which we find the declaration of God's purpose. The next key element in this vision is the lion. For them, we're told, an elder, and the elders are representative of the people of God, so he's a representative. We're told that that he speaks to John, verse 5, saying, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He then is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, this is a a, a description, a a setting out of, of part of what the Bible tells us, both of the line of the Messiah and of the ancestry of Jesus. But although the the Bible tells us that the Messiah and Jesus, who we know to be one and the same, although it tells us that they are of the the tribe of Judah, and that they are of the root, that is, that they are descended from David, and although we do in places find mention of, of the Lion of Judah, for example, in Genesis 49 verse 9, yet, you know, this is the only time, the one and only time in the Bible... That this title, precise title, "The Lion of Judah," is a pride that is applied directly to Jesus the Messiah, which surely implies that this title was used here for a special purpose, used to say something highly significant. Now just hold that thought. Then there's the word that, that comes here as the climax of this statement by the elder. The root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. If you see, that word triumphed in the the original language and the way that it's expressed, that word means a triumph, a victory that is absolute, that is a completed action. That God's triumph is not something that is to happen in the future, but rather that this triumph has happened in the past, that the battle has been fought and won. This is the reason then why this title, why this image was chosen, because what more appropriate image could there be for the one who has triumphed, for a victor, for a conqueror, What more appropriate image than a lion could there be any better fit for the agent of God's purpose? The lion is able to break these seven seals, able to open this scroll, and so to set into motion God's purpose for the destiny of the world and of mankind. Everything seems to fit. Next though, we move on to the lamb. For when John looked to where the elder would seem was pointed, he didn't see a lion, he saw a lamb. Verse 6, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. The lion then becomes the lamb. And the lion is never seen or heard of again in revelation. From now on, it is only the Lamb. Now, we do, of course, find imagery of the Lamb in the Old Testament. We find it there, most memorable, I think, in Isaiah 53, that, that famous chapter on the suffering servant of God, where we read in, in verse 7 that He was led like a Lamb to the slaughter. So He did not, sorry, as a sheep is silent before her shears, so He did not open His mouth which, of course, we rightly see as a prophecy thousands of years before that was fulfilled in Jesus. But it's really John, though. John in the New Testament, particularly in his gospel and here in Revelation, is John who uses the Lamb as an image of Jesus. But what a wonderful image this is that's given to John by the Lord. But there, first there are some details. Including some distinctive details. About this lamb. That I think we need to take note of. And seek to understand. To begin with. The fact that this lamb is seen as having. Described as having. Seven horns and seven eyes. Which are the seven spirits of God. Sent out into the world. Well in the Bible. For example in Deuteronomy thirty-three seventeen, Horns symbolize power. And eyes are related to knowledge, related to insight. And then with the number seven in front of each of them, which as we've said, symbolizes God's perfection and fullness. Well, what this then is saying put together is that the Lamb is almighty. That He is all-powerful. And that He is all-knowing. That there is no limit to his knowledge. But then in connection with the seven eyes, which as we've said symbolizes the fact that the Lamb's all-knowing, or if you want, omniscient, to put it more technically, John links to this, the seven spirits of God sent out into the world. Now here I want to repeat again what I've already said more than once, that in the Bible, the number seven speaks of perfection, of God, of fulfillment. So when then this is used here to speak of the seven spirits of God, I believe that this is a reference to the one Holy Spirit, but is pointing to the various, to the several different ways He is at work in the world. So when you you put this together with the the symbolism of the seven eyes and and God's knowledge, then what this is saying is that not only does God know what is going on in his world, but that also he is at work in his world according to this knowledge, that he is at work throughout history to bring his purposes for us, for this world, to fulfillment. But there's one detail, though, about this lion become a lamb that stands out above all the others. And it comes right at the beginning of John's description. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. I don't want to be gory, but given the worship context and the Old Testament sacrificial background to that, it would seem likely that this lamb had had the appearance of having its throat cut as if in sacrifice. But what above all else is significant here is that it is this slain lamb, this all-powerful, all-knowing, and yet slain and sacrificed lamb. It is this sacrificial lamb who alone is counted worthy to take this scroll and to open its seals. We see here then, do we not, what John's saying? What the Lord is saying here through John. That it is Jesus, the Lamb who was slain. The one who on the cross gave himself for us, each one of us, to pay for our sin. It was Jesus, God and man, who sacrificed his sinless life for sinful man. And then, who rose again, demonstrating as he rose that he has broken the power of sin, that he has overcome all the forces of evil, and that by the power of the Holy Spirit, the resurrection power of the Spirit, that this victory of his is ours by faith, and that we can live in the experience of this. Now, all of this, It's teaching that's core to the New Testament, core to Orthodox Christianity. What is added here, though, through this vision, is that this same Jesus, the Lamb that was slain, is also in charge of our future, of our destiny, of ours, of this world's ultimate, Now, don't you think that would be life-transforming for these churches that John initially wrote this letter to? They were facing a time of incredible, terrible persecution from what at that point in history seemed to be the irresistible Roman Empire. In one sense, it seemed as if their destiny was in the hands of those who wished them nothing but harm. What God is saying to them here though is remember that things aren't always as they seem. Remember that I, the all-seeing, all-powerful God, the Lamb that was slain, that it is I who hold your destiny and the world's destiny in my hands. And that though now to a degree... I'm letting evil work its way out to reveal its true ugliness. Yet, my hand is always upon you. And if you turn to me, if you open your heart to me, I will work in every situation you face in this life to make you more like Jesus. And your ultimate destiny, the destiny of this world is safe in my hand. For no matter how things might at times seem, yet it is I, it is your God, the Lamb that was slain. It is I who will bring this age we live in now to a close at a time of my choosing in a way that will reveal my glory. So do not be afraid. You are safe, in my hands. Let me just add a quote here from uh, J.P. Love. He says that no one but an inspired composer of heavenly visions would ever have thought of it. When earthbound men want symbols of power, they conjure up mighty beasts and birds of prey. Russia elevates the bear, Britain the lion, France the tiger, the United States, the eagle, all Are ravenous. It is only the kingdom of heaven that would dare to use as its symbol of might, not the lion for which John was looking, but the helpless lamb, and at that, a slain lamb. Let's finish now, briefly just by by looking at the response. The response of, of all creation to what God has done, to the victory He has won through the sacrifice of the Lamb. And we find this from verse 8 on to the end of the chapter. And it begins with the the four living creatures who, as we saw when we looked at Revelation 4, represent all of God's creation, the best of God's creation. It begins with them and the 24 elders symbolizing The people of God in entirety, the 12 Old Testament patriarchs, the 12 New Testament apostles, it begins with them, all of them, falling down before God. Something that in Judaism was revealed for worship, reserved, sorry, for worship of the Lord. And an interesting, I think, eye-opening detail is what's then said about them, just that detail there, said about them holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, that is, of the people of God. Now, I want to say, isn't that incredible? Isn't it incredible that our prayers on this earth, that often we think so little of, that we give so little value to, that these prayers are precious to God? to the degree that their picture has been held in golden bowls. They matter to God, and our prayers have a significant part to play as God works out His purpose within the course of human history. But these verses right up to the end of of chapter 5, they are all about worship. It's just wave after wave of worship, one after the other, building up more and more until it reaches a crescendo. It starts with the elders and the four living creatures singing, we're told, a new song of praise. Praise to the Lamb, who by His blood paid as the price for our sin, won us back That we might be the people of every tribe and language and people and nation that God has always intended us to be. Verse 10, that we might be a kingdom and priests to serve Him. And God has removed every barrier that might hinder the purposes of this being fulfilled in this world and in our life. And then it moves on to the angels. We're told tens of thousands of angels, innumerable angels singing their praises to God. And it finishes with all of creation coming in and adding to this praise. Verse 13 says, Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being in the midst of that? That ever-growing, growing crescendo of praise to God. Wouldn't you like to add your voice to that? Wouldn't you like to? Well, as you focus on God, and on what His Word tells us, that despite all the uncertainty, all the seeming hopelessness, and all the lack of purpose we're surrounded by in this world, and despite all the growing opposition in our society to Christian values, with the ever more imminent threat of persecution, if we dare to continue to hold to them. And yet, as we look here, in Revelation 5, and we remember that we are God's. That's what this is telling us. That we are held in the arms of an all-powerful, all-knowing, infinitely loving God. That our destiny, no matter what's going on in the world around us, is safe and secure. And the one who has won us for himself. Again, wouldn't you like to add your voice to that throng gathered round the throne Singing his praises. Well, listen. If you know Jesus, one day you are going to be there. One day you're going to be part of that crowd that cannot be numbered. But you don't have to wait till that day. Because tonight, right now, you can choose to focus on what God has done for you. You can choose to focus on what God has for you in Jesus Christ. You can refuse to be overawed by this world around us, and instead, you can lift up your heart. You can lift up your voice to do what it says here, to give praise and honor and glory and power, to Him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, that Lamb that was slain for us. Let's just come and pray. Father, we want to thank You for Your Word, and we want to thank You for the perspective that it gives us. Lord, that we don't need to be constrained and bound by the things that we see in this world, but Father, that you are in control, that you are our God, that we are answerable to you, and one day we will stand before you. But we can choose willingly today to give you the praise that you are worthy of. Lord, work in our lives that we might be ready to do that now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.